Hello and welcome back to Irish Football Chronicles, where we're counting down the 100 most important games in Irish football history. If you missed our pilot episode, we started out with Ireland's opening qualifier for Italia 90, the draw with Northern Ireland in Belfast in September 1988. We're going to pick up where we left off for this short run of pilot episodes, and this episode covers Ireland's home match against Spain on April 26th, 1989. I was going to kick in there with a bit of public enemy fight the power for the 1989 reference, but we don't need the copyright hassle. In any case, Ireland wasn't quite ready for public enemy in April of 1989. At the time this game was played, the 2FM hotline hit list featured the likes of the Bangles, Simply Red and Mike and the Mechanics. So just to recap on the format of this show, we start off with a little bit of footballing context and background on the game we're going to talk about. Then we move on to talk about the social and cultural and a little bit of the political situation um, in Ireland and around the world at the time the game was played. And then we cover the game itself in a little bit more detail. So just to remind you, Ireland had started off their World Cup qualifying campaign with a scoreless draw in Belfast a defeat to Spain in Seville, and another scoreless draw with Hungary in Budapest. So going into this game, the bare face of the table looked a bit bleak for the Irish. Three games, two points and zero goals into the campaign, Ireland were eight points behind leaders Spain, who'd won all five of their matches to date without conceding a single goal, so a pretty formidable opponent in this upcoming game. But manager Jack Charlton's calculated gamble with the fixture list meant that Ireland now had four consecutive home games to put things right. Now, if you're one of those millennial types and you were traumatised by the 6-1 trashing by Germany at the Aviva or the 5-1 defeat to Denmark, prepare yourself for a bit of a shock. Having four games in a row at home was a massive advantage at this time because Charlton's Ireland just did not lose in Dublin, ever, to anyone. And they especially didn't lose big games. In April 1989, Ireland were in the middle of a run that would see them go unbeaten at home for almost six years. And another thing had gone in Ireland's favour. Hungary, one of their rivals for the two qualifying places, had somehow managed to draw both their games against Malta, who had previously lost all but one of their World Cup qualifiers, as in ever. The Hungarians had also been rocked by a match-fixing scandal, which implicated some of their top players, It eventually fizzled out, but it can't have done much for team morale. Coupled with Northern Ireland's total collapse, this left the Republic in a pretty strong position ahead of this showpiece game against the Spanish. Ireland had extended that lengthy, unbeaten run at home during a couple of friendlies that were mixed in with the qualifiers. A 4-0 win over Tunisia saw John Aldridge finally score his first international goal at the 20th attempt, while in February... 22,000 fans crammed into Daly Mount for a scoreless draw with Michel Platini's France. Couton encore. Centre des pieds droits. Ouais, attention. Frappe de Brady. Oh. Et la balle. The French commentary was a lot more entertaining than the game, or the pitch for that matter, but it was pretty clear that Dalier was on its last legs as an international venue. Four years earlier, a crowd of 40,000 had oozed into Daily Mount's crevices for a friendly against world champions Italy. You've probably seen the famous pictures of fans mountaineering 
on the roof of the school end stand. While it's a cliche to say it's a miracle no one was killed, frankly it's a miracle no one was killed. The France game helped persuade the FAI not to roll the dice and take a risk with public safety by hosting any further international games at Dalymount. Of course, no one knew it at the time, but one of the greatest tragedies in sporting history was just around the corner, and we'll come to that later. What really leaps out from the coverage of the game in the run-up to the match is that sense of destiny. As I said earlier, Ireland actually had a huge amount of ground to make up to qualify, but there was something about Charlton's leadership that gave players and supporters unshakable belief. And in the spring of 1989, people needed a bit of pep from the pitch because the rest of the news was unrelentingly grim. So get your 80s head on, brew up a cup of freeze-dried coffee with a sexually indecisive neighbour. We uh, share the same taste in coffee. And we'll get through the next couple of minutes together, I promise. The 1980s was the heyday of mass hysteria and urban legends making it into the news. If you think the Momo thing was bad, ask someone in their mid-30s about the LSD sticker scare. There was genuinely a belief at the time, my school actually sent round a letter about it, that drug dealers were circulating these sheets of stickers to kids that were impregnated with LSD so they could breed another generation of customers. But... In the spring of 1989, all those fears suddenly became very real. In fact, back in 1982, seven people in the US had been killed by deliberately poisoned painkillers. Seven years later, glass and ground-up razor blades were turning up in jars of Heinz baby food in the UK. Even more scarily, no one knew why this was happening. Was it terrorism, blackmail, or just, and this was the really terrifying thought, A sadistic lone wolf with no agenda other than trying to kill and maim babies. Well, as it turned out, the guilty party was a former Scotland Yard detective who was trying to blackmail Hines, and he was eventually caught and banged up before anyone was killed. If you've ever noticed those little tamper buttons on the tops of jars, that's where they came from. Back at home, in the week of the game, Taoiseach Charles Hawhey had returned from Japan to find his government in turmoil. His Fianna Fáil government was being propped up by Fine Gael in return for a series of cuts to tax and social spending. Stop me if any of this starts to sound familiar. This arrangement served both parties pretty well, until, on the night of the game itself, Fianna Fáil lost a vote on compensation payments to haemophiliacs infected with AIDS. Sounds like a strange hill for a government to die on? Well, have a listen to this official government warning video from the time which tells you something about the state's attitude to AIDS and people with AIDS. Today, if you play around, the stakes are too high because you're gambling with AIDS. Meet someone who is an AIDS carrier, and although condoms give some protection, just one act of intercourse may give you AIDS and lead to death. Sleeping around is a gamble. Casual sex spreads AIDS. Nice, eh? The government did eventually fall, But whatever reservations the PDs had over Fianna Fáil's attitudes to AIDS, it didn't stop them going into coalition with them. After an election in June, Hawhey clung on to power by the cuffs of his Charvet shirt, and the right-wing Fianna Fáil PD coalition would completely redefine Irish politics in the years ahead. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Actually it was. Who am I kidding? 
but RTE did attempt to lift the spirits of the nation by organising Ireland's very first telethon. Studio One in the television building, home for the Late Late Show and tonight for seven and a half hours of the People in Need telethon. In the master control room, the links to broadcasting units in Dublin, the regions and London are glowing on the monitors. Telethons were a big thing in America in the 80s, although they were already slightly passé by 1989. The basic format of a telethon was this. A much-loved, or at least widely tolerated, TV presenter would stand in front of a huge board with a load of big blocky numbers on it, which showed the total donations pledged by viewers at home. There'd be sketches and songs by minor celebrities you thought were dead who'd urge viewers to donate money to various worthy causes. With the 1980s running out of rope, RTE attempted to cram as much 80s as humanly possible into their seven and a half hours of programming. Val Dunican, Dusty Springfield and Daniel J. Trevanti from Hill Street Blues all featured on a bill which positively reeked of crispy pancakes and shaken back. This all sounds pretty uncontroversial, but in fact the RTE studios were picketed on the night of the telethon by unemployment action groups who felt the event trivialised the reality of poverty in Ireland. They may have had a point. I don't know what you're going to do with Ian Dempsey's hair. I mean, you can't cut it very well. Oh, I see what you're going to do. Oh dear, this could be disastrous, so I don't like to look at this at all. Oh darling, you never look lovelier, I can assure you. Now, the title of the scabbiest county in Ireland has long been in dispute, but in April 1989, the Carlo Nationalist pointed the finger squarely at none other than Carlo itself. It took the county to task for failing to enter into the spirit of the People in Need telethon. Kilkenny had brought 10,000 people onto the streets for a tug of war, Port Leisha baked a giant wedding cake, while a Waterford mime group walked from Drogheda to Waterford City stopping off at a hundred pubs along the way to collect donations. The people of Carlow, meanwhile, simply pulled their flat caps over their hooded eyes and skulked behind the couch until Gayburn went away and left them alone. Now, before we get to the football, to the Ireland-Spain match itself, I'm going to briefly broach the subject of Hillsborough. It's been a black day for football. On a sunny afternoon at Hillsborough, Sheffield, no fewer than 93 football supporters died in the most tragic accident for the sport ever in this country. On April 15th, 1989, an FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough, Sheffield descended into unbelievable horror as 96 Liverpool supporters ultimately died after being caught in a crush at the Leppings Lane end of the stadium. There's a lot more I could say, and I'd like to say, about Hillsborough, but there are still cases before the courts in the UK at the time of recording, so I'm not going to go into the details of what happened on the day or why it happened, which are, in any case, unbelievably harrowing. Ireland internationals Steve Staunton, Ronnie Whelan, Ray Houghton and John Aldridge all started for Liverpool on that day, while Tommy Gaynor, who at the time was being tipped for international honours, was in the Nottingham Forest team which saw the horror unfold from the other end of the pitch. I should note as well that Kevin Sheedy of Everton was a former Liverpool player and was obviously deeply affected by the tragedy. Now, attitudes to tragedy and trauma were very different in the late 80s 
from what we aspire to today. Hard as it is to imagine now, Staunton, Whelan and Houghton all lined out for Ireland against Spain in a game which took place just 11 days after the disaster. Although it should be said that neither Jack Charlton nor the FAI pressured anyone into playing. In fact, Ray Houghton openly admitted ahead of the game that he hadn't wanted to play, but decided to travel to Dublin after consulting with his family. On the morning before his departure for the Spain game, Houghton attended the funerals of three separate victims of the disaster. John Aldridge understandably decided he wasn't in the right frame of mind to play and stayed behind in Liverpool. While there was plenty of sympathy for his position in the press, there was also, unbelievably, speculation as to whether he'd jeopardised his future in the Irish team by refusing to travel. Again, some of the language used around these issues seems jarring to us today. England manager Bobby Robson meant well when he explained John Barnes' absence from their game against Albania by saying that Barnes was a very sensitive boy. When things like this happen, we often hear that tragedy puts football in perspective. But that cliché doesn't really tell us anything about how we experience and process trauma. No one really needs to be told that football isn't a matter of life and death. We all know that death, tragedy and trauma are inevitable experiences in our lives, but we resent them following us into our refuges. For most of our lives, time sweeps us along against our will, and the range of misfortunes that can befall us is almost limitless and completely beyond our control. A football stadium is meant to be one of the few places where time and circumstance play by our rules, within our parameters. Hillsborough, like the Heisel Stadium disaster before it, shattered that illusion once again. And at this moment, stewards have got cartons and little paper bags and they're gathering up the personal belongings of the spectators, some of whom died, some of whom are now seriously injured in nearby hospitals, and the red and white scarves of Liverpool, and red and white bobble hats of Liverpool, and red and white rosettes of Liverpool, and nothing else out there on the enclosure where all the deaths occurred, and the sun shines now. And so, as is always the case, people offered up a minute's silence, paid their respects, lowered their flags, and moved on to the game, which is what we're going to do now. Spain had arrived in Dublin with a clutch of Real Madrid players in their squad. Just four days earlier, Madrid had been completely destroyed in the second leg of their European Cup semi-final against Milan. Si defila Colombo, il lancio è su Gullit, il colpo di testa per Van Basten, il gol! Il gol clamoroso di Van Basten, stupenda azione del Milan, 4-0. The final score was Milan 5, Real Madrid 0, 6-1 on aggregate, a result which rocked Spanish football. Granted, there was no one in the Irish team of the quality of Frank Reichardt, Ruud Hullet or Marco Van Basten, but after a pasting like that, the last thing the likes of Manuel Sanchez wanted was a going over on a lumpy Lansdowne pitch. Getting elbowed all over the shop by Tony Cascarino is no one's idea of a hangover cure. Incredibly, the Spanish squad arrived in Dublin to be met by flurries of snow, which gave a slightly surreal air to their pre-match training session. There was nothing novel about this match. In fact, Spain were Ireland's most frequent opponents at international level. This was the 21st meeting 
between the two sides, and Ireland's record didn't exactly inspire confidence. In the match programme, which was excellent by the way, Robert Goggins noted that Ireland had won just three of their 20 encounters with Spain. Spain had filled the Irish net 44 times, while Ireland had managed just 15 goals in reply. And yes, we'll be covering the notorious 1965 encounter between these two sides in a future episode. Incidentally, that match day programme I mentioned did contain a few tempting ads. As well as trips to see Ireland play Malta in November, the Irish travel agency was offering package deals on pilgrimages to Fatima, Lisieux, Lourdes, and, for the pilgrim in search of something racier, a trip to the unsanctioned Marian Shrine at Mediagoria. Sacrilicious. Spain manager Luis Suarez, himself a Real Madrid legend, would watch the match from the stands. He'd been disciplined for repeatedly wandering onto the pitch during Spain's game against Northern Ireland and Belfast, although in fairness he was probably just trying to put as much distance as possible between himself and the locals. Spain lined out in Dublin in a 5-3-2 formation, with Manuel Sanchis replacing the injured André Noir in the libero position. Emilio Butragueño, who scored against Ireland in Seville, led the Spanish attack. Known as the Vulture, Butragueño was considered one of the deadliest strikers in Europe at this time, although he's something of a forgotten man outside Spain today. Something similar could arguably be said of Frank Stapleton, who was leading the line for Ireland today in the absence of John Aldridge. Stapleton and Charlton never really saw eye to eye, but Stapleton was probably the only player Charlton accommodated on reputation alone, although it should be said that Stapleton did knuckle down and play the game the way Charlton insisted. Stapleton was the closest thing Ireland had had to a world-class striker from the mid-1970s onwards, even if his career was winding down at this stage after a barren and bizarre spell at Johan Cruyff's Ajax. Stapleton's career actually wound down in a way you don't see anymore. Nowadays, a top player walks off the pitch for the last time, slips into some loafers and some high-end knitwear, and materialises in a polished chrome pundit's chair almost instantaneously. In April 1989, by contrast, Frank Stapleton, FA Cup legend, Arsenal and Manchester United stalwart, was playing second division football in France with La Havre and would go on to drain the dregs of his talent with Blackburn, Aldershot, Huddersfield, Bradford and Brighton, none of whom were anywhere near the top flight at the time. Young Niall Quinn wasn't getting a look in at Arsenal, so Tony Cascarino partnered Stapleton up front. Few could have guessed that Cascarino had another 11 years of international football ahead of him at this stage. With just three goals in 13 appearances heading into this game, his suitability for international football was being questioned. Whelan, McGrath, Houghton and Sheedy made up the Irish midfield. Chris Morris's absence meant Ireland lined up with a back four of Chris Hewton, Kevin Moran, Mick McCarthy and Steve Staunton in front of Packy Bonner. Moran, of course, was playing his club football in Spain at this time with Sporting Gijón. It's said that one uncharitable commentator referred to the Moran-McCarthy partnership as Gijón and Gijón, although that was a bit unfair to the Celtic man. McCarthy was actually in the middle of a lengthy ban at club level when this game was played, so he'd been shoehorned in to an under-23 international 
against Northern Ireland on April 12th as an overage player for a bit of match practice. The Republic actually won that game 3-0 with goals from McCarthy himself, a very long-range goal from Dennis Irwin and a late John Sheridan penalty. Derek Swan of Bohemians played the second half on home ground at Dalymount at a time when it was almost impossible for a League of Ireland player to break into the international setup. Okay, so we're finally ready to kick off in the game itself, as 22 men stride out onto the lumpy Lansdowne turf to contest what will be one of the defining games of the Charlton era. If Ireland are really to banish the near misses and the moral victories, they'll have to start here today. Austrian referee Horst Brumeyer, who'd handled Ireland's heartbreaking defeat to the Netherlands at Euro 88, is the man in charge, assisted by the rather vaudevillian pairing of Forstinger and Finzinger. The game quickly settles into a pattern of Ireland hoisting long, searching passes down the right wing, and Spain attempting to play something distantly related to football, between the craters of planet Lansdowne. So far, Spain are coping reasonably well. Manuel Sanchez is wandering around with his floppy red shirt drooping down below his shorts, like a man checking the post in his girlfriend's hoodie. Eleven minutes in, Ireland win a free kick on the right wing and force the kind of heart-stopping goalmouth scramble that Irish fans knew and loved. Houghton and Whelan together for the free kick. Houghton taking it. McGrath coming at the back. And the contact was made all right. It won't come for Sheedy. But that's Houghton battling on. And Spain were in some trouble there. Ireland have hit their stride now and they're playing at an incredible clip. Houghton is looking ominous on the right. Lansdowne Road is a sight to behold. Coated in stark spring sunshine, the old ground capped at either end by mounds of expectant faces. The official attendance is 49,600, of whom 20,000 have travelled on a special fleet of Dublin buses, and the Spanish can sense every man, woman and child in the ground glaring down at them. It's one of those afternoons where something has to happen. 15 minutes in. Packy Bonner rolls a free kick to the edge of his box, picks up the back pass, remember it's 1989, and pounds a long punt into the Spanish half, stumbling forward with the force of the recoil. Cascarino barges two defenders aside, flicks on. It's broken nicely over Cascarino to Houghton, but it's still Houghton. Men in the middle, Whelan's there, and Frank Stapleton has done it! at the near post and Frank Stapleton equals Don Gibbons record fifteen minutes of the match gone brilliant play by Cascarino to send Houghton away now not to be churlish at a moment of triumph but most of what you just heard wasn't actually true the goal was actually an own goal by Michel diverted past Subisareta under pressure from Stapleton and Whelan. Stapleton hadn't actually equaled Don Gibbon's record, and he wouldn't do so for a couple of months yet. But George Hamilton, alone in the commentary position with no internet and swept up in the tide of elation, could be forgiven the odd slip. Whatever about our George, things aren't getting any better for José Miguel González Martín del Campo, alias Michel. 
He dawdles on the ball in the centre circle and Mick McCarthy, a long way from home, folds him in half with a teeth-rattling tackle. The ball breaks loose to Houghton who drives towards goal but his weak shot bumps and trundles its way into Zubisareta's hands. Ireland have really dragged Spain down to their level and the Spanish are going back to front almost as quickly as their unruly hosts. Unfortunately for them, Spain haven't quite grasped Charlton's method of creating pockets of chaos around the loose ball and Ireland are defending reasonably comfortably. The game is held up for a couple of minutes as Michel lies prostrate on the ground, whether through embarrassment or getting too close to Tony Cascarino's elbows. Michel takes it out on Stapleton a few minutes later and is lucky not to go in the book. You can taste the frenzied tension seething over Lansdowne Road. Houghton is still jabbing and needling the Spanish on the right. He fires a crossover towards Sheedy, stepping in from the left, but the header is weak. A couple of minutes later, Sheedy picks up the debris of another long ball, burrows between two defenders. And that's Sheedy's cross, and McGrath's in, and the Spanish all over the place. 36 minutes in now. The strain is beginning to show on the Spanish defence as yet another murderous long ball leads to a foul on the edge of the box. Whelan doing the spotting up. There's Sheedy to his right, Houghton to his left. And it's Whelan to try and curl it! And that wasn't very far away at all from Ronnie Whelan. In his ghost-written 1990 football autobiography, Mick McCarthy remembers bouncing off the walls ahead of this game, being so hyped up, before an early booking calmed him down. In fact, the booking comes just a couple of minutes before half-time for an ugly, scything challenge on Manolo. It almost has dire consequences too. Ten there is Roberto. Also with him is Michel. And roll to that. Oh, Bonner making the save he had to. Martin Vázquez appearing from nowhere. And Bonner did what he had to do. But for one awful moment it appeared that the big man had been beaten. It's a strange save by Bonner, who shovels it round the post from an unusually advanced position, but the corner comes to nothing. Moments later, it's the Spanish goal in danger. Steve Staunton will take the free kick as Ireland have pushed seven men forward. One of them, Frank Stapleton. It's broken up for another, Kevin Sheedy. And Houghton! And Zubizarreta profiting from... A strike that did not carry the full venom that Ray Houghton would have wished. In the 45th minute, the Spanish get an even closer shave. Cascarino, Houghton's gone on a run, threaded through for him, and Ray Houghton's offside, he's offside. He's offside. But it was so well worked. Just before half-time, with the crowd whistling in Herr Brumeyer's ears, Butrigueño bursts through onto a loose ball but Bonner dives at his feet to divert it away. And there is the half-time whistle, and what a good half it's been for Ireland. A really enthusiastic, committed performance. So half-time at Lansdowne Road, looking good from an Irish point of view in this World Cup Group 6 qualifier. Republic of Ireland 1, Spain 0. That's it for the first half. Uh, now please enjoy 15 minutes of wholesome Irish music from the Garda Band under the baton of Sergeant John King. 
Back in the RTE studio, yes, RTE's panel in these days was based in Montrose, despite the fact that Lansdowne Road is literally in the same postcode, Bill O'Herlihy is endangering viewers' retinas with a gleaming white Man from Del Monte suit. The Man from Del Monte, he says yes! John Giles and Ray Tracy both say yes to the Irish performance and are confident for the second half. The second half kicks off with the shadows lengthening over Lansdowne and anticipation palpable in the air. After a couple of classic scabby half chances for Ireland, Spain carve out a great opportunity. A long ball from Roberto wrongfoots Kevin Moran and Manolo nods the ball into the box. Eyeball to eyeball with Bonner, 18 yards out, he slices the chance wide. Paul McGrath anchoring midfield today. Skims a shot wide after 52 minutes, well set up by Ronnie Whelan, who's playing very well. Chances are coming thick and fast now. Houghton, who had the Man of the Match award sewn up at half-time, almost embarrasses Subi Sarreta with an audaciously sliced free kick flush to the right touchline. Shidi and Cascarino both miss presentable half-chances in the space of 90 seconds. This is what made watching Ireland under Charlton such an exhilarating experience. It's not like balls are pinging off the goalposts every few seconds. It's more an endless succession of half-chances, of balls bouncing perilously in the box or nicked off toes at the last moment. And it's crude but breathlessly entertaining. But it's not all one-way traffic. Spain force a couple of corners and Mick McCarthy goes in so hard on Roberto that he gouges a lump out of an advertising board for Andalusian cuisine. Try the gazpacho, folks. Incidentally, the FBI's decision to host Spanish advertising at this game was part of a financial bonanza that netted the association upwards of £600,000 from this match alone. We're midway through the second half and both sides make changes. Andy Townsend comes on for his first competitive international. And for the first and presumably last time in his Ireland career, he goes to centre-forward. For Spain, the blunted Butrigueño is withdrawn in favour of Julio Salinas, and Kike makes way for Eusebio Sacristan. As the half wears on, Ireland's lead is looking solid. McCarthy, on a yellow card, remember, flies into a couple of challenges that would probably land him before a war crimes tribunal today, but manages to stay on the pitch somehow. Uniforms flit back and forth on the fringes of the game. Gardaí sweltering in their dark Victorian overcoats. St John's ambulance crisscrossed with belts and pouches. And most nostalgically of all, Lansdowne Road stewards, basically fans in white tunics, hopping up and down behind the advertising boards like butchers who've handled too much British beef. Spain force a flurry of corners in the golden evening sunlight, but only one gives cause for concern, as Bonner misses it but Whelan heads clear. The Spanish are getting tetchy and running out of ideas. On the break, McGrath fly-kicks the ball to the net, but the whistle has long gone for a foul by Cascarino. With just three minutes to go, a whisper of Spanish class almost does for the Irish defence. Roriz clips one over the top from deep. McCarthy is nowhere, but Julio Salinas, always a good man for a big touch, can't control it. The Barcelona striker will have better luck at Lansdowne in the future, but that's a long way off today. Down the other end, Houghton causes chaos in the Spanish box. There's a mad scramble, and Whelan blems it miles over. 
As the clock ticks down, the stakes ramp up. A victory and Ireland have a clear roadmap to the finals for the very first time. A Spanish goal and Irish football will be hostage once more to unmerciful fate. 45 minutes have elapsed, we're now playing time added on. And the final whistle sounds. And Spain's first World Cup defeat is Ireland's first World Cup victory. An outstanding performance at Lansdowne Road by the 12 boys in green. RTE don't linger in the studio. The post-match post-mortem lasts barely 90 seconds before Bill O'Herlihy brings the show to a close. Understandably, with viewers waiting impatiently for... Omnuocht at 7pm. Patient viewers could hear Jimmy McGee's interview with Jack Charlton on that night's BBC Northern Ireland Sports Night. The, on the other occasion when we didn't close him down quick enough and I let the man at the back settle to knock his ball to a free man in midfield and he was allowed to turn, they were the balls that caused me a little bit of anxiety. Uh, as long as we had somebody pushing and pressurising the man on the ball, it, uh, we knew we would get it eventually. They looked a very unhappy defence, didn't they, under that? Well, they did. I mean, Tony Cascarino and Frank were magnificent today. I mean, they battled for every ball in the air. They really pushed them to, to the limits at the back today. What about the decision to bring off Frank, put on Andy? Did you feel they were getting grip at midfield? <clears throat> yeah, that was my main worry at that stage of the game, was that they were going to push another man into midfield or another one forward. So it was more important than ever that we closed the man down at the back on the ball, to stop him knocking the ball forward. As you can kind of get a sense of from that, Charlton was very much a tactical manager, whatever his reputation. Most of the commentary on the game focused on how high Ireland had pressed the Spanish, although to modernise it looks entirely unremarkable, because Charlton was so far ahead of the game in that respect. What's still remarkable is the astonishing speed with which Ireland got the ball forward and placed defenders under constant pressure. It must have been horrible to play against. The Spanish certainly didn't like it. Spanish newspapers described the Irish team variously as primitive guerrillas and mad dogs, while complaining that the Spanish press didn't get enough sandwiches. Manager Luis Suarez, meanwhile, had some choice words in his post-match press conference, which I've attempted to simulate via the miracle of automatic translation and speech-to-text. It was genuine hell, because the Irish just dedicated themselves to kicking us. No deberían permitir juegos en este tipo de campo. They shouldn't permit games on this type of pitch. Es un campo de rugby y solo apto para ese deporte. It is a rugby pitch and only suitable for that sport. Meanwhile, in his Evening Herald column, John Giles was full of praise for Charlton. Charlton has drunk well at the fountain which begets inspiration. He wrote, Bookmaker Paddy Power, always on the lookout for a cheap headline, slashed the odds on Ireland qualifying to 12-1 to 1 on. Premature? Find out next time when we'll be covering Ireland's crucial qualifier against Hungary. Before I wrap things up, I'm just going to leave you with a final thought. By 1989, it was clear that the 80s had promised more than they could deliver. Microwave spag ball, cheap leather jackets, tinny synthesizers and a total disregard for the rest of humanity wasn't ultimately the road to happiness, it turned out. But perhaps the most tragically unfulfilled promise of the 80s was that made by the Soviet space program. On the day of the game, 
the Irish Independent reported that Soviet space chiefs had concocted a plan to blast Paul McCartney and Sting out of Earth's orbit. Ostensibly, this was for the purposes of performing the first ever live space concert, although personally, I have my doubts. Tragically, the Soviet Union would collapse before the plan came to fruition. See you next time. Some of the clips you heard in this episode came once again from YouTube user Killian M2's invaluable archive of vintage Irish television. He's just launched a standalone football channel too, so check that out. You also heard some clips from the BBC's coverage of the Hillsborough disaster, including Peter Jones' famous wrap-up report. Copyright on all that material rests with the copyright holders, and it's used here purely for historic and informational value. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at 100 Irish Games on Twitter, or 100 Irish Games, that's 100 Irish Games, at gmail.com. And we'll see you again very soon. Take care. Hey, let's be careful out here.